Uh, good to see everybody here uh, this morning. I'm Tim. If this is your first time to NBC, welcome. We're going to be uh, taking a look at, at our scriptures in the book of Job today. If you're looking, it's right before Psalms. It's a little bit before halfway in your Bible. Go ahead and open it up and flip through till you find it. Um, I want to just, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this kind of during announcement time, but I want to say thank you to all of you who came to the groundbreaking yesterday. Uh, what a great thing that was, eh? Amen? Yeah, just to, uh, to be there, to see um, just the different ways that God is moving in our city and how our church is playing a part in that is something to really be excited about. So thank you guys for coming out. Uh, we'll celebrate a little bit more here a little bit later on in the service. Uh, we're going to be in Job chapter 42. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip it over there. And let me just begin with a simple question. My guess is most of us can answer this in the affirmative, at least at some point in our existence. You ever reach one of those stretches of life where you just kind of feel unlucky? Like, I'm just in one of those seasons where almost anything I touch goes bad. If, if there's a kitchen cabinet I can hit my head on, I'm going to do it. If I can slam my car door into something accidentally, I'm, I'm going to do it. If there's a job, I will lose it. If there is a relationship, I will ruin it. If there is whatever, you just feel like this, I'm off. Uh, there is something upon me right now, something that I just can't, no matter what I do. Uh, I decide I'm going to get fit, and then I get sick, so I can't work out. Anything I do turns to mush. It gets worse. There's a fellow by the name of Bill Isles. He was 48 years old, and he did something we've all dreamed of. He won the lottery. $656 million the guy wins. Now, we all know that you have as good of a chance of being struck by lightning as you do winning the lottery. Well, as it turns out, some people are lucky enough to have both happen. About three, after, three hours after he wins $656 million in the lottery, he's in Kansas, it's a storm season, and lo and behold, he gets struck by lightning <laughs> after winning the lottery. That's what I'm talking about. You just can't, you can't do anything right, even when you win the lottery. Here comes the lightning. I'm going to guess there are some of you that are in that kind of a spot this morning. And maybe you feel like God's turned his back on you. I can assure you that's not the case. But I have a word for you, I think, from the Lord about what it means to persevere and to allow God to restore you and your relationships as he does for Job. Job wasn't unlucky. He wasn't one of those guys that has a great life and then he gets struck by lightning kind of a thing. It wasn't that. God was very much at work, as we've talked about over the last month, in Job's life even though it felt that way, perhaps, to him at the time. And his friends, always ready to offer Job a kind word of, of uh, stupidity on God's behalf, show up and tell him, hey, Job, look, this is clearly happening because you have sinned against God, so if you'll just repent, I'm sure God will relent. And so God's finally now going to address Job's friends today. And then he's going to go about that business of trying to pull it all back together again and restore the fortunes of Job and perhaps we can learn a thing or two from Job, how he handles himself, and also how God deals with Job and his friends, and how he pulls all things back together again. So if you had a Bible, let's take a look. Job 42, 7 to 11 is where we're going to start. We're going to read a little bit more than that over the course of the morning, but we're going to start there. So let's take a quick look. So after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, we studied all those words last week. The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, 
and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite. Do you know how much it takes to practice that out loud? I mean, we should use that, that one verse as punishment in children's church. Don't you think, hey, get up in public in front of the whole class and you all just read that verse until you're ready to behave. I'm not doing it again, so we're going to move on from there. He went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Okay. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and when he had prayed for his friends, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy. About time, don't you think? And comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. Interesting translation there. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. All right, so just to summarize what we read there. God's upset with Job's friends for speaking wrongly of him. And so God asked them, he says, I want you to go to Job and I want you to offer sacrifices on Job's behalf. And then Job is going to pray for you. And I'll listen to Job. He's basically saying, I wouldn't listen to you if you prayed to me anyway. But I'll listen to Job because Job spoke properly of me. So go to Job, do right by Job. Offer sacrifices there, and depending on how you want to look at it, it could be alongside to Job is another translation you could get. But the point here is, you need to go make this right with Job. And then after Job's, uh, and then basically he says, I'll hear Job's prayers. And then after Job and his friends are reconciled, that's huge in this story, okay? After they're reconciled, God restores the fortunes of Job. So I'm just going to pull a few nuggets out here this morning as we uh, conclude the series we've done on Job. Let me just begin with kind of one of the meta themes of the entire book, which is we must learn to think and speak nobly of God. God rebukes those who speak wrongly of him and delights in those who speak truth on his behalf. So God rebukes Job's friends, particularly Eliphaz, for, quote, not speaking of him what is right. Well, what did he say? He said, well, you told Job that the reason this was happening to him was because basically I was upset with him, because I was angry with him. That's not at all what was going on. And so you poured forth nonsense. You put words in my mouth that were false. And we, had a whole, we spent a whole week on that concept in this series where we talked about how important it is to God that what we say about him to others is important, which is why we don't rush out and talk to others when bad things happen to people. We walk with reverence and non-anxiously because we want to make sure that if at any point we, see, we say, thus saith the Lord to another person, that the Lord actually saith and it's not just my anxiety, my desire to try and make them feel better, my, my kind of human wisdom deciding I'm going to try to, you know, force this uh, upon them or what I wish were true. Because that's what Eliphaz and the other friends of Job do. Hey, Job, let me tell you what's going on. This is why this is happening to you. And they speak falsely of God. And we have to be very, very careful, sisters and brothers, when we presume to speak for God. Now, a lot of Christians in the nation we're in are getting to where they're extremely quick to speak on God's behalf when they shouldn't, and then they fall silent when they should speak up. So you look and you, a tsunami happens, everybody wants to talk about why this happened. 
school shooting happens. Let me explain that one to you. But somebody comes to you, a sister or brother, and gossips to you about another Christian, and what happens? Nothing. Where you should, where the Bible gives you a clear instruction about how to do it, instead of steering them to somebody back to the person they're gossiping about or shutting it down like you're supposed to, you go ahead and say, well, tell me more. Or you just let it keep going. You see an injustice in the world. You're in a position to do something about it. And instead of doing something about it or speaking out against it, you don't, even though you know what God thinks about it. And so Job, in some ways, is very much a book about learning how to speak at the right time according to the wisdom and the word of God and learning how to be silent in accordance with the will of God and waiting for God, giving God time to show up in the whirlwind and speak for himself. There's a reason the Bible says that those who teach are going to be judged more harshly. It says that in James 3.1. And it's because the task of a preacher or any Christian that is sharing with a friend is not to have conversations that put words in God's mouth. It's to put words from God's mouth into the conversation. And those are two different things. Now we do this, we speak up when we do. We, we do that in an appropriate way by following the Holy Spirit's leading and how we deal with things. And the closer they are anchored directly to Scripture, the better off we're going to be. We also do this by pursuing God's heart in word and prayer so that we actually have a sense of how God might actually feel about something. It's a lot easier for me to tell you, hey, what do you think Emily would think about this? My wife, that's who Emily is. If you're going, who's Emily? She's right there. Isn't she sweet? She, yes, yeah, she is. I, I'll clap for my wife all day. Yes, I will. <laughs> okay, but you know, if, if you come up and ask me, hey, this is what I'm going to do. What do you think Emily would think of that? I got a pretty good chance. I can, I can bat 990, okay, on that kind of a thing because I know her. Uh, we, we have three kids together. We've lived together in marriage for 18 years. We dated for three years before that. I just know her heart. And so the closer you are to God, in the same way, the more you're familiar with his word, the closer you are to him in word and prayer, the better chance you're going to have at being able to serve other people. And I think that's one of those things that goes missed when we make some of the decisions that we make about how we're going to order our lives. We miss the missional side of it. We miss out. I mean, um, our youth pastor DJ says something sometimes to our teens. It's important. He goes, you know, when you, when you don't show up for youth ministry, for instance, guess what else happens? You don't bring anybody with you. If you're not there, you didn't bring anybody with you either, usually. And people don't think about the decisions they make and how that flows down the stream. So, for instance, if, if I'm going ahead and, and creating distance between me and God, or I'm not paying proper attention to my spiritual life, it's not just the negative impact that it has on me, which is profound, but it's on all the people that are attached to me in some way that I could have served but now maybe I open my mouth in stupidity and, and make their burden heavier. Or maybe I'm, I'm just not as godly as I could have been otherwise, and I'm just not as fun to work with or live with or, or whatever. My kids, my wife, or whatever, they don't like being around me. You guys don't want to be around me anymore. Whatever, right? And that's why there's a missional side to walking with Christ, not just that personal side and all the joy I get from it. It's, it's an act of service to others to say, I want to be close to the heart of God so that when God puts me in a position to be a blessing to another person, that I can do that well. I can do it non-selfishly. So it's one of those things that here in, in Job's uh, story, 
His friends are speaking foolishly. God seems to lead us to believe that Job's closer to his heart than his friends, and that's why they speak gibberish, and he speaks truth even in his anguish and his pain. Now, it's not always saying the nice things. I mean, Jesus, John the Baptist, they're happy to rebuke people, but, and they're actually spoken of as full of the Holy Spirit when they do so. Job's friends are full of something else, we'll say. Not the Holy Spirit. And that's the point that God is trying to make in how he orders this ending to Job's story. By saying, you guys go back. You repent for the way that you spoke of me to Job. You didn't love him in the moment. You love him now. Be reconciled to him now. And then he's going to turn to Job and he's going to say, and Job, by the way, you be reconciled to your friends, even though Job hadn't done anything wrong. Anyway, you welcome your friends back. I mean, it's tough. God requires Job's friends to offer sacrifices for Job and ask Job to pray for them. The reason is likely that their prayer is unacceptable to God. And so we need to understand that the words that we say have power in the sight of God. And just as Jesus says that we will give an account for every careless word we utter, righteous words are a blessing in the sight of God and something that we can use as healing for people. Secondly, God's a reconciler. He reconciles people to him and people to one another. He brings Job and his friends and his family all back together by revealing himself to them, and he asks them to make right what they've done. He asks Job to pray for his friends who had wronged him through their accusations and speaking falsely of God. And so this one way to put it would be that reconciliation with others often precedes reconciliation with God. Okay, this is something that can't be missed in the book of Job, and it certainly can't be missed in the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. Job's reconciliation with God and restoration of blessings happens after he reconciles with his friends. That's how God orders it. He didn't say, hey, now that we're good, why don't you go back and, and be reconciled to your friends? No, no, no. He flips the order. Tell you what, Job, here's what I want. Job's friends, you go be reconciled to Job. Job, you be reconciled to your friends. And when that's done, then he restores the fortunes of Job. Now, I want you to think for just a moment, how difficult must this have been? I mean, Job's repented in dust and ashes before God, so he's basically said, look, whatever you're going, you ask me to do, I will do it. And so God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be reconciled to your friend. Friends, go do right by Job. Job, forgive your friends. Pray on their behalf. So he asked Job to pray for these guys that rub salt in his boils. kicked him while he was down, piled burden on burden. They were supposed to be the ones that gave him the encouragement. They were those, supposed to be the ones that were right by his side saying, come on, Job, you can get through this, you can get through this, you can get through this. Instead, they kicked piles of dirt on him. They made him think that God was against him. Job, I want you to pray to me on their behalf. So Job does Hearkening to something like this, <clears throat> Matthew 5, 23 to 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled 
to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Those are the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Or another one of his greatest hits comes in the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our trespasses. We were taught to pray this way, right? In the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. What's the next? As we forgive others. Oh, yeah. I like the first half way better. There's a museum in Zagreb, Croatia called the Museum of Broken Relationships. Look forward to seeing that one on your trip. (laughs) There were two artists that had a falling out. Their relationship broke up. And so they decided to pull together their stuff. They started looking at some of the mementos from the devastation and the aftermath of their breakup. And so anyways, word got out in the little artist community they were in. So when they went to show their art, people heard that they were kind of like collecting mementos from their fallen relationship. And they started bringing their own stuff. So people showed up. They had a shattered garden gnome that some lady had hurled at her husband's car when he was driving away. And they've got an axe. I'll just let you think about what that could have been for. (laughs) Nothing positive. But they take all of these things, these symbols of tension and breakup and pain, and, and they put them together in a museum. So if you go there, there's over a thousand items in that museum, each with a story. The owners say, we might say it's a love museum, just upside down. Okay. Here's the thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just suggest to you this morning that a lot of people A lot of people, they never make their peace with God. They they can never draw close to God the way they could if they shut the museum down. I know there are people in here, and I've looked, not to be disingenuous, I got got my own museum that opens and shuts from time to time. And as much as I want to get rid of the museum altogether, it's still, you know, I know where where the light switch is in that thing when I need to. But see, Jesus says it over and over and over. He tells the story of the parable of the unforgiving servant would be an example. That if you desire for God to look over all of the things that you do to God. I mean, this is my least favorite passage of Scripture. I mean, among all of them. This might be the one that bothers me the most. That reconciliation with others might actually precede my ability to be reconciled to God. And so people don't They think that somehow by holding grudges or whatever, that that's just justice or the right thing. It's No, no, no. That's how the world thinks, yes. But what Scripture makes very clear is that you cannot have your heart open to God fully and have that museum open at the same time. That museum has to go. Now, I don't know if Job, he, he, he might have had what he would have had in his museum, a, a broken piece of pottery that he was scraping his boils with in one of those gross scenes of Scripture where he's scraping his boils with this broken pot shirt, or whether it was some uh, letter that was written to him by somebody just meaning so well, you know, wanting to help him and bless his life that he said, you know what, Job, If you just repent of that sin, frankly, I've always thought you were a bit of goody-two-shoes. I bet you're just self-righteous. If you just repent of that, I bet God would relent. 
Or maybe it was the echo of his wife's voice saying, curse God and die. See, sounds and sayings live in the museum too. You ever been to the Grammy Museum in L.A.? Where you can put the earphones on and listen to interviews and songs and old recordings. It's really a pretty good buy if you ever get up there. You should do it. It's like 10 bucks. You can be in there all day. Sounds are just as powerful as images or objects. And we can keep those times when she said that or he said that or they said it's over or they confessed something to us that laid us out flat. And sister and brother, I'm not saying it's easy. But what I am saying is that if you want to be right with God, we have to learn to forgive. The heart of God is, is bent on reconciliation. He, he sent his son to die so that we could be reconciled to him. And he sent then us forth to be reconcilers. And so I don't, I don't, know, I don't know who it is. I don't know what it is. I, and I don't even know if that's your problem right now. But it probably will be at some point in your life if it hasn't yet. Your heart's going to be so devastated by another human being, they're going to have said the wrong thing, done the wrong thing. They will have hurt you in ways that you didn't even know you could be hurt. Shut it down. Put the museum out of business. Because the only thing it really does is keep God at a distance from you. It puts a barrier there. It puts space between you and God. Now, one of the things about my museum, I don't know if your museum's like this, but I love to walk other people through it. <laughs> let me tell you about everything that happened to me. <laughs> Anybody else like that? Hey, let me tell you about the time when this happened to me. And let me tell you about the time this person did that. And hey, let me tell you about that. And let me tell you about that. Hey, did you, can you will not believe this? Take a look at all that they've done wrong, Johnny. And then I have to remember, I have to go back to the scriptures and I have to go, hey, Jesus told a parable about it. A man was forgiven a fairly small debt back in a time when you were thrown in prison if you didn't pay your debts. He goes away, a man forgives, owes him a very small debt, and he has that man thrown in jail. The king who forgave him the debt hears about it, takes him, has him thrown in jail because he can seize the injustice of saying, how can I, how can I receive all that I've received from God? How dare I keep the museum open when God shut the museum where he kept all my junk, when he closed that thing down whenever I was baptized into Jesus. He shut that thing down. It was gone. So he shut mine down, but I'm going to keep yours wide open so that I can keep, you know, pointing out how you did that. You didn't. It doesn't mean the wrongs didn't happen. But I'm in ministry for 21 years. And I have never met a person who would stand before you or me and say, my life was better because of the grudges I held. Mm -mm. You probably heard the sayings, you know, all the cliches that go with it. They're not untrue, right? It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Those kind of things, they're not terribly untrue. And to forgive people does not mean you're permitting what they did or you're minimizing the pain they caused you. It just means... You're choosing not to continue to be held a slave to what they did to you. That you're willing to let God set you free. So wherever your museum is, turn to your neighbor and just say, shut it down. Go ahead, take a look at him. Say, shut it down. <laughs> okay, now listen, this is hard. 
This is hard, but it's something that you can't miss at the end of Job. He says, you go be reconciled to your brothers now. Let me restore all of this. I remember I used to go to, uh, I still do, uh, every Thanksgiving. We go up to, to Long Beach and we serve uh, Thanksgiving dinner to a, a group of seniors. Most of them are between 70 and 90 years old. Uh, most of them, about half of them are homeless, homeless, and the rest are, are basically teetering on the edge of homelessness. They have nowhere else to go. And I, I can remember as a boy wondering in my head, don't these people have families? Well, yeah, they do. Well, the problem is their family's got a bunch of museums open, right? And, and, and they don't want to be around mom or grandma or grandpa because of everything that happened there. I bet if I went up to, I don't know, out, out into the park and I grabbed somebody homeless out there and I asked them, tell me your story. There'd be museums set up all different places, mementos of when they got kicked out of the house, how they never forgot, forgave their mom or dad for that and how this and that happened. And Do you see how Satan uses those things to hold us hostage? And it really doesn't have to be that way, sister or brother. God is one who not only welcomes us back to him, he does so, in the case of Job, in a very beautiful way, which is via the road of reconciliation to those who'd hurt him. Because, see, Job could come back and God could give him all of his stuff. And then when he saw all of his friends walking around town, what's his life like? Is he walking around free? Can he just go where he wants to without feeling anything? Or can he walk around free because he's already forgiven his friends and because they've done right by him? God doesn't just say forgive him. Now, Jesus says that in the New Testament. Just forgive him anyway, whether they do the right thing or not. But God, since he's already in the room, bothers to tell his friends, listen, Eliphaz, Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go over there, and you're going to do right by Job. So it's not acquitting people. It's just saying, I refuse to be a slave to that, and I'm not going to let that weasel or that person who did that to me come between me and my Heavenly Father. I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to be free in Jesus' name. When we gather around the communion table, sisters and brothers, we gather at the table with one who looked past our wrongs, and who restores us to full relationship with one another every time we take the bread and the cup here. This is a table of reconciliation. It's one where we realize that it's by his wounds that we are healed. That it's because he intercedes for us and for that reason alone that we're accepted and God doesn't deal with us as we deserve. And so God restores Job's fortunes. So the movement then becomes Job repents before God. God restores human relationships. God restores Job. This is Job 42, 12 to 17. Here's how Job begins to end. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He, also, he had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. Now you know where Aunt Jemima got her name. Uh, and the name of <laughs> the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. Now, uh, it doesn't roll right off the tongue, but it does say that, you know, in the, in, in, you know, that there were nobody as beautiful as Job's daughters. They must have been pretty, even if they didn't hit the name jackpot. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons for generation, and Job died an old man 
full of days. And that's, that's Bible for he lived a good life and he died in a great space when he, when he went. So he ends up with twice the animals, ten children, including three daughters. Now those names, by the way, in Hebrew, they mean dove, a, a kind of perfume, and a kind of eyeshadow. I don't know. L'Oreal and <laughs> Estee Lauder or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Job lives twice the normal lifespan, and he sees his great-grandchildren. And so God delights in blessing Job and restoring him. Though part of that blessing includes his suffering. I'm told that British shepherds, they'll take their sheep and rams, and one by one, they'll, they'll throw them into this like dipping trough, like a dunking booth for sheep. And they dump them in there. The sheep, of course, is terrified by this. You can imagine the bleeding. Is that what, what sheep do? They bleat or scream, or what do they do? Come on, we have, have to have some farmers. This is Escondido. Nobody knows? Okay, they're going to yell, all right? We're just going to say they're going to be terrified sheep. And they go in the, the dunk tank. And, of course, they're terrified. They try to get out. And so they put sheep dogs around the, the tank to bark at them and nip at them so that they go back in. And this solution that they're dipping them in keeps them free from parasites and, and other things that could, could really hurt them. There was one Christian writer who witnessed the process, couldn't help but remember that Jesus was called the Good Shepherd. She wrote this, she said, I, I've had some experiences in my life which made me feel very sympathetic to those poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from the shepherd I trusted, and he didn't give me a hint of explanation. But as I watched the struggling sheep, I thought, if, I, if only there was some way to explain to the sheep what's going on. But such knowledge is too wonderful for them. It is high, they cannot attain unto it. That's Psalm 139.6, by the way. We too have a good shepherd, she writes, who is committed to his sheep, though he often does things to us to frighten us. And I thought, well, yeah, that's probably about right. He does what's best for his purposes and what is best for us. And for us, this is good news because it frees us from having to understand why everything happens to us or to question the judgment of God. We can trust in him knowing that he and he alone understands it all, that he is over it all, and that he means us no harm. And so in the times that we're hurting, we can turn to Christ, our Savior, who himself learned obedience through what he suffered. Suffering is part of the Christian story. And as we head into Easter season now and into Passion Week, we should, be remember, we should remember this. As we said in week one of the Job series, you know, it's interesting that Christians are among the first to say that, that there can be no point sometimes in innocent people suffering when our entire faith is built on the suffering of an innocent person in Jesus. Because we think like Job's friends, the only reason a person would suffer is either if God had his hand off the wheel, God couldn't do anything about it, or like Job's friends, we say, you deserved it. You're reaping what you sowed. And Job kind of gives us a different way of looking at things, which is not to necessarily answer everything. It's just to offer the gift of God himself to us and his will in terms of how we behave. And then offering God to us saying, trust him. He's good. And when the time is right, he will, he will do what he has to do to try and bring everything together. You and your enemies, your enemies and you. And if it be his will to restore your fortunes as he does to Job. 
Jesus, our Savior, suffered at the hands of sinners as an altogether innocent man. And yet he endured suffering for the joy that was set before him. And when we suffer, we need to rejoice that like Jesus and our new buddy Job, that suffering doesn't get the last word. It's not the end of the story, Job's suffering. It's the restoration of Job that ends the story. And the suffering that we experience right now is kind of the last groan of our creation that was broken at the fall. That's already in the process of being renewed by Jesus, our Savior. And our suffering then glorifies God as we continue to walk in the steps of the one who endured the cross, saying, not my will, but yours be done. His life, Job's, does not end on the ash heap, broken and in despair. His life ends full of days, as the text calls it, in rich communion with God and others, bouncing his great-grandkids on his knee with quite a story to tell. But, if I might be a gloomy Gus here at the end, I must add, that may not be the case for you or for me. There may not be a happily ever after for those who suffer on this earth. Nevertheless, we know that as we suffer, we're identifying with Christ, our risen, crucified Savior who strengthens us now and who stands awaiting our arrival at his side. So we say with Paul, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to conform to his death. Sisters and brothers, our present sufferings are not aimless. They're not purposeless. We may never know precisely what their purpose is other than its purpose is God's, whatever it may be. But we trust him because the cross of Christ speaks to us declaratively that whatever the reason is for our suffering, we know it isn't because God doesn't love us. So whatever you're going through, don't fall into the trap that Job's friends set. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God has forgotten you. He's by your side. He's with you. He sees it. And it's just a matter of time, whether it's in this life or it's in the next, that your suffering will end. It won't go forever because God restores injustice. God restores what's broken. And so let us say 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 12. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, Paul writes. So my prayer this morning for us as we begin to gather around the Lord's table this morning is that we would remember the story of God's restoration of Job. The restoration of Jesus to life after his death and to remember the presence of the Almighty God's right hand as we go through this life knowing that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us and that nothing can separate us from his love. And so this morning as we gather around the table of reconciliation and my prayer for you is whatever that museum is that you might have set up in your heart, shut it down.
The museum closes right here today. And we're going to pull the light bulbs out so the lights can't come back on. We ain't showing anybody else through. It goes quiet today. So that we replace that with a heart that's fully open to God and ready for what he wants to do in our hearts and our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather around the Lord's table, my prayer for every broken heart in this room, anybody who feels like somebody's done them wrong or that they're suffering and they don't understand why, Father, that you would speak to them out of the whirlwind of your word this morning. That if there are barriers that are separating them from people in their life that they're holding grudges against, that they would release those in Jesus' name, that they would be set free, that the museums would close. My prayer, Heavenly Father, is that if people are disillusioned and wondering if you see them, that you would comfort them in their distress, that you would help them to understand that you're never far, but that you're near, that you do see, and that when the time is right, you will restore what's broken. In the meantime, Father, give us trust that you are good. Help us look to Jesus, the great sufferer in chief, who you restored to your right hand, raised him from the grave and set him at your right hand, Father. May we look to him now as we take the bread and the cup as a sign of your unfailing love for us, that whatever else is going on in our lives, we know the one option that's off the table is that you don't love us. So may we take comfort in your love and grace this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.